and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 10th of June with me, Ian Welsh. Following Innovation Forum's recent online Future of Food conference, I caught up with Brigitte Holter, Head of Green and Low Carbon Fertilisers at Yara, and Klaus Johansson, Head of Sustainable Development at Lontemann. We talked about fossil fuel-free food supply chains, and in particular, the role of low emission fertilisers in developing them. Plus, earlier this week, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop, ahead of the in-person Future of Food event in Minneapolis in the US, which is coming up next week. That's all to come. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Apparel non-profit Global Fashion Agenda has released a new report, GFA Monitor, with the aim of guiding the sector towards being net climate positive. The research has found, however, that less than eight years from the 2030 deadline for the Sustainable Development Goals, the fashion industry will be responsible for twice the emissions permitted to be within the Paris Agreement's global warming pathways towards net zero by 2050. The report calls for new bold alliances to redesign the fashion system and establish pervasive change and presents guidance based around five pillars, respectful and secure work environments, better wage systems, circular systems, resource stewardship and smart material choices. According to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, $16 trillion of assets have already been committed towards achieving net zero emissions by 2050 or before. The initiative was launched in 2020 with the aim of helping asset managers to reach net zero by 2050 and keep global warming within 1.5 Celsius. It's been signed by 273 companies now, with notable names including AXA Investment Managers, Aviva Investors and Columbia Threadneedle. Signatories must set interim targets for 2030 with an ongoing review process so that the proportion of assets aligned to net zero is continually increased towards 100%. $42 trillion of assets have targets set so far at 83 investors, with 39% of those at a net zero 2050 commitment at this stage. This is 4% increase since targets were first announced at COP26 in Glasgow last November. Energy ministers from the G7 Group of Nations have agreed a new set of proposals at a summit in Berlin that should deliver a decarbonised electricity mix by 2035. Notably, Japan has agreed to end subsidies for overseas fossil fuel projects, meaning that all of the G7 now has made this pledge. There was some disappointment at the watering down of language in the ministerial communique, which had been due to talk of fossil fuel-free electricity networks by 2030, but which ended up with only pledging for predominantly carbon-neutral networks. COP26 President Alok Sharma said that the commitments reaffirmed those made in the Glasgow Climate Pact in late 2021. I was in Stockholm last week as part of the World Environment Day celebrations and was pleased to moderate a webinar featuring a number of representatives from Red Plus deforestation projects from around the world. Our webinar coincided with the launch of the Forest Plan by Everland, our webinar sponsors. The plan is an ambitious framework brought together in response to the Declaration on Forests and Land Use at COP26 and involves a rapid growth in Red Plus projects around the world to turn the tide in deforestation. The plan outlined the development of up to 75 new community-based Red Plus projects in threatened forest landscapes, with up to $2 billion of commitments generating up to 800 million tonnes of verified emission reductions by 2030. If this level of emission is matched by others in the project-based red sector, then Everland estimates that this alone can save around 17% of all projected deforestation in key forest nations around the world. The video and audio recordings of the webinar are now available on the Innovation Forum website. We'll be reflecting more on the forest plan and how its ambitions can be achieved over the coming weeks. Finally, I'd like to make a mark of support for British investigative journalist Dom Phillips, who's gone missing, along with a colleague, in apparently suspicious circumstances deep in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Dom worked with a number of the Innovation Forum team in the past, and we need more like him who are prepared to highlight the truth of what's going on in the world's forests and the harm to those regions' biodiversity and the indigenous people living there. 
Innovation Forum's Future of Climate Action Conference was held online this week. It was great to catch up with podcast listeners during the event and at the networking sessions. I'll be reflecting on some of the outcomes from the event next week. The Innovation Forum Spring Conference Series is completed next week on the 14th and 15th of June with the in-person Future of Food Conference in Minneapolis in the US. To find out all the latest details, a few days ago I caught up with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop. Welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Thank you for having me. So the event's coming up next week. How's it all come together? It's definitely shaping up to be a great two days in Minneapolis next week. We've got over 200 participants involved, including 50 expert speakers joining us at the graduate. We're going to be discussing how food brands can adapt to drive regenerative food systems. Very much looking forward to getting there and having some great productive conversations. So what are the latest additions to the agenda and any last minute panellists? Since we last spoke, we've confirmed some great new speakers, especially in our session on the second day where we're looking at who pays for sustainable innovation. We're going to be looking at the role of brands and investors to enable and incentivize supply chain innovation. And we've got a great panel with President of Field to Market, Scott Herndon, Lisa Larson, the Director of External Innovation at Riches, Ben Van Stratton, the Director of Innovation at CHS, and Stephanie Rich, who's the Head of Platform at Bread and Butter Ventures. So very much looking forward to that panel. And that's really shaped up to be a really great start to the second day and a number of other great panellists we've got confirmed as well. It does sound like there's some really great sessions coming up. How can everyone get involved, Emily? People can still register on the conference website if they want to buy a ticket to attend the conference. If anyone is interested in group booking discounts, they can email me directly at emily.herslop.innovationforum.co.uk and they can buy tickets all the way up to kind of the day before the event. There's still plenty of time to get involved if you wish to. So what are you looking forward to most? Too many things. Actually meeting people face to face for some challenging and productive conversations, I'm sure. I would say the one session that I'm most looking forward to is looking at transparency and trust and how to reconnect consumers with their food. So we've got Kimberly Sunday from Kellogg's, Katia Hantel, Canagra and Xavier Roussel from Dole Food Company on that panel. So it's shaping up to be a really, really exciting conversation for that one. Just meeting everyone and having a great few days. Those going, sadly, I I will not be travelling to Minneapolis this time, so I will not be at this event. But I'm sure those that are going will have a really interesting couple of days, some really great conversations and insights for sure. Emily, safe travels and look forward to hearing all about it after the event. Thank you and thanks for having me in. The Innovation Forum Autumn Event Series includes the next in our Future of Plastics and Packaging events on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impact at scale. Full details on the Innovation Forum website. If you'd like to join us and you are quick, you can save €500 Euros in tickets if you register by close on Friday 10th of June. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November, also in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. And now is a good time to register, with a €400 discount on conference passes still available. I recently spoke with Birgit Holter, Head of Green and Low Carbon Fertilisers at Yara, and Klaus Johansson, Head of Sustainable Development at Lontmanen. We talked about the sorts of collaboration that can deliver fossil fuel-free agricultural supply chains and the role of green fertilisers in these. Brigitte, why don't you start us off by giving us a brief bit of context-setting introduction about Yara. Yara is one of the leading fertiliser companies in the world. We have a 17 billion US dollar turnover and approximately 17,000 employees worldwide. 
we have a mission of feeding the world and protecting the planet. And that is what we're going to talk about today, how we can do that as a company and together with the food chain. So we have major plans for the future and for the present. Klaus, why don't you do the same about Lundmanen? Lundmanen is a farmers-owned company. It's a cooperative owned by Swedish farmers, 19,000. We have businesses throughout the value chain from field to fork which means we're covering all the way from, for example, plant breeding all the way to uh, finished goods, including, for example, bread and pastries and things. So, so all the things in between the ends of the value chains is in our business. We are also committed to take responsibility from field to fork and driving the agenda around the farming of the future. Today, we're going to be following up some of the conversations we had at the recent Innovation Forum Future of Food conference. We were in a session that was looking at some of the technologies and approaches to preparing farmers and their food chains for the effects of climate change, and specifically talking about developing green fertilizers and fossil-free food chains. Klaus, why don't you start us off thinking a bit about what a fossil-free food chain is and what are the key ingredients in that? There is a lot of components and there are lots of steps in the food value chain. It has been developed, I would say, for the last couple of more or less hundred years with help from fossil energy. And that's what we try to transform now into a fossil free value chain. First of all, you need to identify all the steps and see where are the fossil content in this value chain. And one of the major ones in the beginning of the value chain when it comes to farming is the fertilizer. And that's why this is so important. It also contributes with a quite big share. If you make a climate footprint of your product, the, the fertilizer is a really key component in that calculation. It's a major part, even if it's quite long, far back in the value chain. It's a big and important part that you really need to address if you should claim a fossil-free food value chain. Brigitte, Yara have been working to develop new fertilizers and move towards finding fossil-free fertilizers as well. What constitutes a green fertilizer and what are you doing to try to develop ones that are no longer reliant on fossil fuels? What we need to make a fertilizer is a green ammonia. Ammonia is the primary input factor for all kinds of fertilizers. And ammonia consists of nitrogen and hydrogen. So far, we have taken the hydrogen out of the hydrocarbon from the earth, from the fossil. We have used natural gas. Others can use oil or coal for that matter. We have used natural gas, and that means that we have had a fossil base, as Klaus just said. Now we will start to electrolyze water and take the H out of the HO2 and use the hydrogen there and combine it again with nitrogen to make the green ammonia. That means that we have developed and invested in a new technology. That investment is under construction and that we will start producing the green fertilizer as of mid next year. We will, of course, also then for the electrolysis use renewable electricity as the energy into that electrolysis. So it will be as close to fossil free as possible for some of the end products where there are the nutrients in there than nitrogen. There will be reminiscences of carbon footprint and of fossil from the other nutrients where we're also working to see whether we can, in the future, have a lower footprint of those, either by recycling the nutrients or otherwise reducing the footprint. So that's the technical part of it. I guess then, given that you're electrolyzing water and taking nitrogen from the air, as long as there's sufficient renewable electricity available, the scale here is potentially enormous. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you pointed at the correct bottleneck here. Renewable electricity is now in high demand from all kinds of sectors. So here we need to find out how we do that. And But we also think that hydrogen as such is a good way to store and transport electricity and energy for the future. The hydrogen itself and the ammonia itself will actually have new areas of usage. And we have a separate entity in Yara working only with that, which we call the clean ammonia part. It's certainly very exciting. There's loads of exciting things happening in the renewable energy space right now. Here's another example of the ways that it can help the planet and help us decarbonize the global economy. Let's think a bit about collaboration. I know that Lundman and Yara have worked together on this and other things. Klaus, from your perspective, how important is collaboration here? These are big, big challenges. And whilst both companies here are, are big companies, you, you've recognised that, in fact, you need to work together to solve these problems. Even if we are covering the value chain from field to fork, there is definitely parts that is outside our control and competence. And that's why, of course, we have our suppliers and our partners. And Yara is one of the key ones. And we have more or less worked together for 100 years or so. It's a long-term partnership. And we think this is the next important step. Yara stands for the competence and the resources to drive this kind of innovation. We can take the values from this project, from this new innovation to the market. We also need to cooperate in that end of the value chain because the fossil-free fertilizer comes with a premium and that's something that we need to also address to the market and make sure that they understand that there is added value to this kind of products that's coming out from this value chain. Brigitte, I guess from Yara's perspective, if you are making these investments and developing this technology, you need to be certain and comfortable that there's going to be long-term markets for these products. So therefore, I would imagine collaborating with the likes of Lantmanen is really important to allow you to be able to make the investments in the technology that you want. Definitely, it's actually imperative because on the one hand, one could really say that, well, this has to come anyway. We need to have a fossil-free future. So this will come. On the other hand, it's now in the beginning where we really are paving the way for new thinking, where we really can claim and that Lantman is sort of we together with Lantman and Lantman together with us, we are proving it's possible to take out certain foods and start sort of eat the elephant by pieces. We start with one supply chain and say, let's make it fossil free together. Let's make it low carbon. And then we can build on and scale it up from there. It's also important for us, both of us, to say that this is not only a future dream, it's actually a present reality, and it will come on stream. Adding the green fertilizer seen from the food chain, I hope it looks like it's the last piece in the puzzle, or actually the one that is easy to add on for the food chain, because there is no change in the processes. It's the same fertilizer produced in a different manner, which allows the farmers and the food chain to act like they have always done and that's why we also think it's a premium worth of it because it's a non-effort it's effortless for the chain it's impactful as class just told us when it comes to the carbon footprint but on the other hand if we are not ensured that this is something that the food chain wants then it's very difficult for us to scale up this cooperation is imperative for both of us it's such investments included here that we really need to know that we are on the right track, that the market is mature for it, that somebody wants to use this as a first mover advantage and really set a signal to the market. I think it's a really interesting point that what you're doing here is not disrupting existing supply chains as far as the 
ultimate consumer is concerned, the farmers, it's the same process, it's the same sort of fertiliser, it's just created differently. What something that came out at the event actually was talking about this point where you are producing things that initially have a greater cost, then efficient use of that fertiliser is a very is a key point for the farmers. If they're using the fertiliser in a more efficient manner, then of course they won't need as much. And that's a key point as well then to get around the initial increased costs inevitably as technology changes. And that is something that we all have to work on anyway. We should never use more resources than necessary because that ends up with being negative for nature and um, biodiversity and not at least the farmer economy. When we had our session, we talked about the fact that there's a bit of a, a cliche around pilot projects and that pilots never fail, but then pilots fail to scale. So we talked about some of the things that you're going to be doing here to ensure that that doesn't happen. But Klaus, for you, what are the key things to do to ensure that the green fertilizer pilot projects will be scaling and becoming the norm? What we do is try to implement that in a broader manner, not building any niche concept, but rolling it out in our farming program. We have a farming program called Climate and Nature, and that's where we collect all the measurements that really contributes with sustainability performance on farm level and bring that to the market. So what we now do is uh, that we develop this program with the next step, and that's the last piece of the puzzle to fossil-free value chain. So that's how we also go to the market with a broad kind of offering, not only niche product or a small product range, but going to the market, both business to business, but also business to consumers with this offering. It's possible for everyone to join. The farmers involved in your organization, how much are they welcoming this? Is it something that they are keen to develop? What's the sort of mood of the farmers? Every industry are working with the fossil-free challenge, if you put it that way. And, and I mean, of course, the farmers think it's great that we also now come with very concrete measurements to take these steps forward. But what's, of course, important for them is that they can still be profitable on farm level. So we also have a possibility to bring this value out to the market. In general, very positive to the technology and see that, okay, this is something that helps us greatly when it comes to sustainability. But as Birgitte said, it doesn't change the way they work. So they don't have to do investments in new machines or something. They can just continue to work with the precision farming and integrate these new solutions. And I guess a conscious rethinking in terms of where the costs are distributed across the value chain is all part of this. Brigitte, what do you think would be the keys to ensure that these sort of programmes will scale successfully and become mainstream? And again, you can see it from two sides. On the one side, we have to. We will see an increased population. That's all the statistics and the UN is saying the same. We need to feed a world which is 50% larger in 2050 than today. On the other hand, we have this one single planet and we have one single atmosphere. So we really have to find a solution to how to do more with less. So that is a push. And then on the pool side, where we really see that there are food companies like Lantman and others who really say, yes, let's take that to the market. Let's be a front runner. Partly the cost and also hopefully the benefits of being a front runner and make a statement in our industries. Having said that, it's also then important that the third party comes in here, and that is that we must make sure that the farmers is remunerated here. Large investments on the production side, the farmers cannot really pay that unless they have a better income in the other end. And we have also done the calculation, and Klaus can perhaps also comment on that, that 
if you do it in a responsible manner that we can transfer the cost only, the extra cost in the other end on, uh, on the food itself doesn't have to be major as such. I think if we all work together and including also authorities that see what the agricultural industry is doing and trying also to support that, I think we get a package together that can make it possible for everyone. And I guess from a consumer perspective, the real drive on efficiency is really around food waste. I mean, so much of food is wasted at the consumer end that they need not necessarily pay more for their food if they are better and more efficient in the use of food and there isn't such a concern with food waste. What do you ultimately think are the keys and what do you want to see as greener fertilisers come more into the mainstream? Is there a need for involving food retailers more, do you think? Yeah, as I said, we need to engage in the full value chain. There is climate challenge, but there is also biodiversity challenge. And there are also other challenges connected to food production. And that is nothing that the farmers can solve by their own. So we need to involve the retailers, the consumers all the companies in the food value chain to make it possible. I think we have quite a lot of the solutions in the hand. It's not so much about new technologies and new innovation. Of course, we need that, but lots of things that we can do today. Just if we can put a little bit more added value on food. And and if you're related to the food waste, and we said that around 30% is wasted. I think if you convert that 30% into added value, I think it's enough to drive quite a lot of the transition in the full value chain. We need to reevaluate food a little bit more. And I think from the geopolitical situation we have now, we reevaluate food quite differently when we did three months ago. We have a little bit new view on this kind of challenges and questions. Definitely appears to be a need to reevaluate a lot of these things. Brigitte, what's your view? Do you think we do value food correctly? Is the greening of the fertilizer supply chain just part of that realizing of the value or accepting the value? Yes, and first of all, I think also this is what the class just mentioned now is also this. It's quite fun to see how the food chain as such is changing from being a chain that works together to really take a product to the market from A to Z. I guess that we will see both in the food industries, perhaps also in others, that we have a totally different way of organizing ourselves business-wise. When you said earlier that we are not sort of disrupting the supply chain, there is nothing we are doing there. No, perhaps not. On the other hand, I think the way of working together will be totally different in the future because what one part of the value chain is doing is so strongly influencing the result of the others. And therefore, to evaluating the food, yes, obviously the last months have changed. We have never heard so much about fertilizer in, in public media than we have done for the last first half year because of the crisis and then the three months because of the catastrophes that we see around us. And more and more that also tells us that we are one chain, we have one task together. And that is to bring the best possible food to the market in such a way that it doesn't ruin the planet, it doesn't make us too dependent upon those fossil resources that are not renewable and will come to an end anyway. And thirdly, we have to do it in a way that everybody in the chain profits and can actually join that chain knowing that there is livelihood for everyone in that chain. It does really seem to feel back, always comes back to collaboration. And as you both pointed out, it's sometimes in a time of significant challenge, a time of shock, like we are seeing it right now, then that is when everyone realises that they are part of the same value chain and do need to collaborate for that value chain to maintain its robustness as we go forward. 
It's been a fascinating discussion. My thanks to Brigitte Holter from Yara and Klaus Johansson from Lontmelin. Thank you both very much. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. Look out for the latest column from climate specialist Mike Scott, as well as the recordings of our forest webinar held in Stockholm. And don't forget that if you want to join either the Future of Plastics and Packaging or the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conferences in Amsterdam this autumn, you can take advantage of discounts and passes if you reserve your place now. Everything you need to know about these is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye. <laughs>